0: Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, you guys. It's such a uh, pleasure to be back with you. Hey, Aaron. I understand you have a repeat guest, a very esteemed repeat guest. You guys know that I don't like live podcasts in general. Not <laughs> not. Uh, I don't like them as a listener, and I don't like them as a person who's doing them. There's no inherent problem with them. I just think that they... Often don't go well. So Lawrence Wright uh, has been on the show before. When I say that it didn't go well, by no fault of Lawrence Wright's was his initial appearance on the show, kind of a disaster. We were in Austin at South by Southwest, and there was a bunch of people in a bar who were not there to see the interview, and the sound system wasn't really working. So there were certain <laughs> limitations to that experience, and I've always wanted to have him back on the show. He's one of my favorite writers. Um He uh, probably most famously wrote The Looming Tower, which is a history of Al-Qaeda, but he also uh, has written about Texas recently, and he uh, wrote a novel about a pandemic, kind of like this pandemic, before the pandemic happened, that was deeply researched. Uh, I can't get through all of the different topics he has written at a very, very strong depth about. But uh, we focused in, in this conversation a lot on uh, the looming tower and what has happened in the 20 years uh, since 9-11, this being almost exactly the 20th anniversary, and also coinciding uh, right now with the evacuation of Afghanistan. And he had a lot of really interesting things to say about that. Really excited to have him back. He is one of the true masters of written nonfiction. I'll tell you another thing I'm really excited about, our new partnership with Vox. Long Form Podcast, now produced in partnership with Vox. Thanks to them for making that possible. And now here's Aaron with Lawrence Wright. Welcome, uh, Lawrence Wright.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you again, Aaron.
0: I think the last time that we talked, we were on a very noisy South by Southwest stage while the sound was failing, so this is much uh, calmer. Um, It's around the 20th anniversary of uh, 9-11, which led to your book, The Looming Tower. And one thing when I sort of revisited it that I, I hadn't realized was that you spent time in Cairo as a young person. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that period of your life and how it may have contributed to your later reporting.
1: Well, remember, Aaron, this was back during the Vietnam era, and um, I was a conscientious objector out of Dallas, Texas. It was kind of surprising, and uh, I had to do two years of alternative service to fulfill my obligation. Uh, The requirements were that it be at least 50 miles from home, that it pay very little, and that it nominally is in the interest of the United States. So Uh, I didn't have any problem with being 50 miles from home. I was so eager to get out of the U.S. It it was such a contentious time in our history. So I went to New York, uh, to the U.N., thinking they would give me a job. They would send me far, far away and pay me very little. And uh, they said they didn't qualify, but they had a list of American institutions abroad. And one of them was the American University in Cairo which had an office across the street at 866 UN Plaza. So I walked across the street. It was one of the most fateful walks in my lifetime. I didn't know that we didn't have diplomatic relations with Egypt and there were scarcely any Americans at all in Egypt. I didn't know that the president of the American University was a CIA agent. I didn't know. I don't think I knew what language they spoke in Egypt. You know, I just walked across the street and uh, 30 minutes later, uh, they said, can you leave tonight? And I said, no, I can't leave tonight. I haven't told my parents what I'm doing. My girlfriend's back in Boston. I can't leave tonight. Can you leave tomorrow? Well, yeah, I can go tomorrow. (laughs) So (laughs) I went back to Boston and said goodbye to my now wife, but uh, leaving that in a very uncertain state. I called my parents from JFK and told them I was about to board a flight to Egypt and I was going to be gone for two years. Then I landed at midnight and I taught my first class at nine in the morning. So that was my introduction to the Arab world. And I was, you know, I was just graduated from college and the kids I was teaching, you know, they were almost my age. And so it was a very odd period of time, but I loved that period. Uh, I really enjoyed my students. I love being a teacher and, and I, I f- fell in love with the culture in Egypt. I, it was a great period of time. I never thought that it was going to determine the future of my life. So, uh, importantly as it did.
0: Did you have, uh, writerly ambitions at that point in your life?
1: Yeah, I did. When I came back from Cairo, uh, after two years, I sat down and wrote an article for The New Yorker called Letter from Cairo. And uh, of course, I had not informed The New Yorker of my intentions. And I I sent the article in. I was in a lake house in Quitman, Texas. And um, there was an RFD mailbox with a little red flag that you, you know, I It seemed that my contribution to the New Yorker was picked up at the RFD mailbox in Quitman, Texas, went to New York, was rejected and sent back the very next day. I don't know. I know that's not possible, but it was was very quickly turned down. And I realized this uh, ambition of mine was going to take a little longer than I had planned.
0: Did you have... Interest journalistically in the Vietnam conflict itself. As someone who would later sort of cover these giant geopolitical issues, how did you think of the war that was happening?
1: Well, you know, I hadn't yet formulated myself as a journalist. I I wanted to be a writer, and it was a generalized longing, you know, that took the form and sometimes of imagining myself as a poet in Greenwich Village and. I, you know, at a time when I didn't even read poetry and had no idea what the rent was in Greenwich Village. It was more of a, I wanted to be a creative writer and I hadn't decided how that was going to manifest itself. And it was after I got back from Cairo and I had to make a living, uh, I realized that nobody was going to publish my uh, novel or something like that if I had nothing to say. And I I felt inadequate to being the kind of creative writer that I would later aspire to be. And I realized that people will only pay you for information. Uh, And that's what journalism is. And so I set out to try to write and teach myself the skills of a journalist. And then I found out that there was a very appropriate calling for me.
0: What was it that clicked for you the first time, where you didn't feel that inadequacy or that like, I don't know what I'm doing. What was the first thing that really worked that you did?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. My first job as a journalist was at the Race Relations Reporter in Nashville. And I was called the white writer, although the truth was, I was the only writer for for some time. Uh, and I it was new to me. I think the first time I felt that I was really learning the craft is, you know, I was. this was in the age of the new journalism. You know, Tom Wolfe and John Sack. You know, there were some great writers that were expanding the canvas. And that very much excited me because it was not just journalism. It was, you know, literature. And, uh, it, you know, it opened a door to the future for me and i i began to experiment um there was one i wrote one article i wrote about a klansman in north carolina his name was cp ellis and uh i remember it was a fascinating story because cp ellis was the head of the local clan but he was upset at the school board and he ran for a school board seat but he had the support of black political figures in the city. And this was really intriguing. So I, I went down to write about him. And uh, he told me that you know after the Watts riots, he was so angry that he had gotten his deer rifle out and he went downtown Durham, North Carolina and shot the first black man he saw. And then he said some of his clan buddies went into the operating room and took the bullet out of the tray when the surgeon removed it. He's telling me about an attempted murder and a cover-up, you know. But I wrote it, and uh, and and but I wrote it in the style of the new journalism, or at least what I thought it would be like. And I visualized him sitting in his room, in a living room, pounding the dust out of the armchair in anger. And then, you know, I imagined the scene. And CP wrote me an angry letter saying. There is no dust in my wife's armchair. <laughs> and the stuff about shooting a black man and getting away with the crime, he didn't address at all. And I realized he was totally right. I made that up. And uh, it wasn't fair to him. It was a moment when I realized this sense uh, authority and the responsibility it brings. I should have talked to him about it. Uh, I should have gotten him to visualize a scene for me. And I began to realize that, you know, there is a craft here and and there are moral obligations that the writer has. And uh, that article was very helpful to me in terms of expanding my horizon, but also showing me the limits of my own morality.
0: How did that apply later when you were writing about groups like al-Qaeda, where no one saw many of these seminal events. There was no journalist in the room, and much of the story happened in, in secret. I'm curious, like, what techniques you use when you can't see the, the chair and the dust and, and these kinds of details. How did you deal with those issues in that reporting?
1: Well... It was a hard story to tell because a lot of the people I was talking to are, you know, intelligence agents and terrorists. And yet the weird thing, Aaron, is that it's always been a little bit mysterious why anybody talks to a reporter, you know, (laughs) but uh, everybody, most everybody believes that they have a story to tell and that if they could just find a sympathetic listener who will understand them then you know they'll be able to get their point across and i try to be that sympathetic listener and even though i may be forming judgments i i want to understand where they're coming from and so yeah i wasn't in the room you know when they were planning 911 but you know i talked to people that you know were in al qaeda i read you know their Manuscripts, I read the news reports. And, you know, when I set out to write this book, as true of all the books that I write, I try to envision scenes. uh, Just, you know, I write movies and plays as well, where there's no narrative, you know, it's all characters and scenes. And those are very powerful qualities to import into nonfiction. So, It's not just the province of novelists to be able to use those techniques, but the deal is you have to research it. You know, you have to have some assurance that it's true.
0: Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening laughing because like who would have thought watch running sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how team milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course You describe the sources as uh, primarily terrorists and intelligence agents. What do they think they're getting out of talking to you?
1: Uh, Still sometimes surprising, but, you know, let's take the example of um, people that had been close to Bin Laden. One of the first interviews I had with somebody that had actually been in the organization was uh, I was in Sudan uh bin Laden was in Sudan from late 91 to 96. And um I, I I wanted to fill in that part of his life. So I was pressing Sudanese intelligence figures to help me out. And they you know they were polite enough. They took me around, showed me bin Laden's house and stuff like that. But I know and I need to talk to somebody. So one point uh there's a knock on my door in the hilton (laughs) in cartoon which has nothing to do with the chain and um at the time i had been doing so much traveling uh and i'd injured my back and i saw i you know those exercise balls that you can also sit on you know that you have to blow up i was carrying one of those with me because my back was really in pain so a knock on the door, and there's a Ahmed, this Sudanese intel guy, and this other man. And uh, they come into the room, and I Ahmed was really tired. So he laid down on my bed and immediately fell asleep, leaving me alone with this al-Qaeda guy. And I had no idea who he was. So I said, what's your name? And he said, well, you can call me Loay. And that was it. So, okay, Loay. They, they, Let's talk a little bit about bin Laden and he knew everything. I mean, I realized this was a treasure trove. I had no idea who he was, but he was he had been with bin Laden in Afghanistan. he had fought with you know fought with bin Laden in the Soviet era. Uh, he'd managed obviously much of bin Laden's uh, work in Sudan. but I still didn't know who he was. So I went back to the. US. I did some studying. I finally found Muhammad Loy, Bayazid, whose Al Qaeda name is Abu Rida al Suri, and he was the guy who took the notes at the founding of Al Qaeda in 1988. It's his handwriting. I, thought, <laughs> I only I had known, you know. So I went back to Khartoum, and he wouldn't see me. And so I began to plead with him because, you know, this is a, you know. Why did he talk to me before? Why won't he talk to me now? So I went back a third time, and he agreed to see me, and I had to carry my exercise ball with me. And I said, loe it's a lot of trouble coming to Sudan. Why didn't you talk to me last time? He said, well, I didn't know how seriously to take you. First time I met, you were sitting on a balloon. So <laughs> that was my <laughs> my introduction to al-Qaeda. He, he talked to me. And he was an incredibly valuable source.
0: When you're having those kind of interactions with people, do you come right out with what you want to know, or do you spend time building trust in, in shallower waters before you, say, ask about bin Laden?
1: Well, you know, my my usual thing is to try to ease up the tension. Just make sure that that my source knows that I am going to be fair in terms of my questioning. But also, I put a tape recorder between the two of us so that he's always aware that this is on the record. You know, it, it, One of the perils of journalism is becoming too friendly with your sources. And um, it, it's easy to do. I mean, there are a lot of people after my story has come out of my book, they you know I, I keep up with and I'm fond of. But uh, while we're going through this process of being interviewed, it's business. And uh, I I think that an era of professionalism is also something that helps engender trust.
0: One of the things I noticed when I was reading your um, your reporting about the pandemic I mean, there's this huge sea of very influential uh, scientists, public health officials, government officials that it seems like you were able to access pretty quickly. But do you maintain a professional network of interesting people that you may want to call upon in the future? Or are you generating this whole network for each topic that you dig into?
1: Well, I do have a lot of sources, and I, I always try to keep, you know, my Rolodex uh, up to date, but because uh, I I don't have a news organization, you know, I'm a one-man band, but for the pandemic, yeah, when I, when I wrote uh, my novel, The End of October, the novel is about a pandemic, a virus that takes over the world, and I was interviewing a lot of people then. And one of them in particular, Barney Graham, helped me create the virus, (laughs) you know, imagine it. And uh, then he helped me cure it because I realized my hero was in a spot and, you know, we we had to come up with the cure. So he was very, he was the kind of collaborator in that regard. It turned out he's the guy that invented the vaccine for Moderna and Pfizer. It's the same vaccine, essentially. So he's one of the great immunologists ever. And he had already helped me with my novel, and so he was available to help me uh, understand what uh, he and Jason McClellan, who was a structural biologist in his lab, uh, were able to do in order to throw a life raft to humanity, which is what that vaccine is. But for the most part, the cast of characters that I assembled to tell this sweeping story of the pandemic i had to create on the fly and i didn't know anybody in the trump white house and uh i i saw the name matthew pottinger who was a deputy national security advisor and i put that together with his father stan whose name i knew i had actually met his father he had been in the nixon administration and I knew that Stan was good friends with a friend of ours, and so I called the friend of a friend. And I said, "Do you think Matt would talk to me?" And it turned out he had come to Matt had come to one of my one man shows that I'd done years ago, and we'd actually had dinner together. I had forgotten all of that, and so that's how I ran into my first contact in the in the Trump White House. And you know, each of these things, um, you know, people whose lives had been changed by the pandemic they were all discoveries that i made through reading newspapers or talking to people about you know the kinds of people that i was looking for i had decided that in order to tell the story of how the pandemic affected america i have to look at certain institutions congress the white house wall street broadway the frontline hospital you know each of these would be a representation of a part of America. And then within those institutions, I had to find uh, appealing and interesting characters who could tell the story. So that was the way the structure of the plague year came about.
0: I was struck on rereading some of the New Yorker uh, stories that I guess probably led up to Looming Tower. There's um, the story about Zawahiri, who's kind of the other... Major figure other than bin Laden or or one of the other major figures. And you describe the neighborhood he grew up in outside of Cairo and the social milieu and the country club in the neighborhood and the power structures within that. And it struck me as this infinite rabbit hole of once you start looking into someone's past and where they came from and the details and texture of that place that you can kind of infinitely zoom in on every fact that that led this person to to who they became when you're editing and when you're processing your notes and research how do you decide what goes in and and what doesn't and and you know what fits in terms of summing up a whole person in that way
1: well it's a It's a crucial question, Aaron, you know, and it's a little hard to answer because so much of it is just intuitive. I mean, when I'm working on The Looming Tower, you know, I've interviewed 600 people, read countless books and magazine articles, and I had many articles and books translated, and, and all of that went into note cards. I mean, I should say not all of it. When I'm writing things down in a note card, Already, I've, a selection process has gone on. I've read five pages, and suddenly there's a sentence that's interesting to me. So I put that on a note card. And let's say that sentence is about uh, one of bin Laden's wives, Najla, his first wife. You know, she's she's from Syria. Uh, she meets bin Laden when she's 14 years old. So that's interesting because I already know that I'm going to be writing about bin Laden and in order to write about bin laden i'm going to be writing about his his background i'm going to be writing about his family life his religion his education all the stuff that, the essential elements that go into making a world class terrorist and you know where did he come from so every time anything interesting turns up about Najla, i would put it on a note card and then the day comes when i'm writing about her and i pull out the note cards now there's a lot more information but it wasn't interesting enough to me at the time to remark it and even after i've got all these note cards a lot of them are never going to be used but they were potential uh colors on the palette and uh and then the, you know that last moment of discretion before you you know you you put those cards back in the box is you know do we want to know uh that she's Losing her figure and running around the the Kandahar compound to try to keep her figure while Osama is marrying other women. Well, yeah, that's. I think I'll use that. Uh, it's that's a human detail that brings it alive for the reader, and uh, and suddenly you see her, and, and I, I. It's those kinds of telling details that bring people to life.
0: It seems almost like there's. Like a sense of poetry in that, as well as journalism, that it's, there are important facts to telling the story, and then there are these facts that sort of give you a feeling or have almost an aura about them.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I mentioned about that moment where journalism seemed to open a door into literature. And I think there's nothing more important about a person than their story you know (laughs) in a way that's who we are and yet uh memories fade and people die and so those stories disappear and and uh, the job of the journalist is to go out before that happens and accumulate the kinds of stories that are going to help us understand who we are and why we are and where we are right now in time and Try to thread those stories into a coherent narrative. And in a way, you give it a kind of immortality. Uh, and that's a big job, it's a great privilege.
0: You've been writing about Texas most recently, which is where you live and where you're from. What is it like turning that same lens on your own native culture and looking at the changes in, in Texas since, since you've been alive?
1: Uh, well, you know, I used to work for Texas Monthly. When we first came back to Texas um, in 1980, uh, Texas Monthly hired me. But I found it too constricting just writing about Texas. And so, uh, years later, when uh, the editor of the New Yorker, David Remnick, asked me to explain Texas, I was amused by the question, for one thing. Uh, For what, you know, I have New Yorker colleagues that live all over the world but the fact that I live in Texas is seen as being uniquely peculiar <laughs> and, and I yet, you know, it's my home. And uh, But I also decided it probably was time for me to look at Texas again, I, so much had changed. What was especially important to me was the realization that Texas is becoming America, I mean, Texas is already the second largest state. It was the only state to get two new congressional delegates, you know, at a time when New York and California both lost one. It's projected to double in size by 2050, at which time it will be larger than New York and California combined. So, you know, the future of America is Texas. And I don't think either Americans or Texans. have any idea about the consequences of that and i sure know that texans haven't taken on the responsibility of leadership that that is required uh, and so i would it was out of concern that i wrote it but also out of affection because i'm fond of texas you know i i'm here because i have friends i'm i, I like the community so there's a dialogue that goes on that i think is constantly interesting to me.
0: You've been to Egypt uh, and many places in the Middle East and, and tried to explain the culture and, and really dedicated enough of your life that I would say, you know, as much as uh, there's a very rarefied number of Americans who've, who've spent as much time thinking and researching this stuff as you. And yet, I still would say even someone with that kind of knowledge of Texas coming from the outside, a certain kind of person in Texas would say that an an outsider could never understand Texas and that there is some essential knowledge that that comes from being uh, Texan. I guess I just wonder what you've learned having immersed yourself in all these places about the limits of understanding a culture that isn't your own.
1: Well, that's interesting. I, you know, I, I understand the, the critique that people make about outsiders because in most of my stories, I am that outsider. You know, I parachute in, and um, you know, I had a lesson in this when, after nine eleven, I knew I had to go to Saudi Arabia, and I had to write about Bin Laden, and I couldn't do it from afar. But the Saudis wouldn't let me in as a journalist, so. How do you get in? And I finagled (laughs) a job at uh, this newspaper in Jeddah, which is bin Laden's hometown. And uh, it was the best thing I could have done. I mean, the Saudis depend on expat workers. You know, they were very suspicious of journalists. But I was coming in as an expat worker, even though I was a journalist. And uh, somehow that slipped through the cracks, but the most important thing was I had a job. I had to go to work every day. I had all these young reporters that I was supervising, and uh, you know I had a I was living in a middle class Saudi flat. Uh, I you know rented a car, and I you know I just I was living as a person in Saudi Arabia while I was also trying to be a journalist there. And I had all these young reporters teaching me far more about their culture than I could have learned uh, as that reporter in the Hilton. And it opened my eyes to the limitations that we usually are faced with or impose on ourselves because we are removed and we float above the cultures that we report on. And um, I'm not saying I was totally at one with Saudi culture, but I sure learned a lot more than I would have otherwise. And it's always been a lesson to me about the need for immersion, uh, to try to get in as deeply as you can. Uh, because in truth, the great material is there when you finally get further in. You know, the, So I'm very grateful for the fact that the Saudis wouldn't let me in as a journalist it helped me tell that story so much better than I could have otherwise.
0: How do you budget for a story as immense as looming tower was in terms of your own time and energy?
1: I had, didn't really know what I was getting into is the answer. Aaron. Uh, when I signed the contract for the book in um, February 2002 and I, the contract term said I would turn it in one year later in February of 2003, and I scratched out February and wrote May, and I turned it in five years later. So uh, honestly, I, I I had you know little idea about the scope and what was going to be required, but you know it was more like a mission than just an assignment. And so I wanted to go all the way through on this one, you know, get in as as deeply as possible and try to understand why what happened happened.
0: Was that a personal risk for you? Like, as I think of like book advances, usually you don't uh, get more after you blow past the uh, first deadline. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although it is good for the students out there to realize if you sign a book deal, they really can't force you to finish the book. So you, you can blow through the deadline, but you still get the same amount of money.
1: Yeah, that's true. Uh, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know what was going to be the reception of the book because in the those five years that it took me to write the book, uh, hundreds of books came out about the same subject. And, um, I just felt that this one I have to give it everything I've got, and also I was learning how to write that kind of book. Every every book teaches you how to write itself, and um, you know there was a lot of learning that was required for me to organize that material, and uh, you know I had to hire translators for I, I don't know how many different languages. Uh, You know, there was a lot of travel involved. It was a very lonely uh, experience for the most part. But, you know, I was comforted by the fact that I, I believed in what I was doing.
0: You don't seem like someone who shies away from a topic that you think other writers are writing about. I mean, even going back further in your past, um, you wrote a book about satanic panics or a specific satanic panic, which yeah. seems as close to sort of the, uh, 1980s zeitgeist, as I can imagine. Um, like how do you think about competition and sort of blazing new ground in a story? Is it interesting to you if other people have already told the same story?
1: You know, I, I hate being a Part of a press mob you know i just have no interest in it and that was one of my part of some of my reluctance uh at first to write the plague year because there were a lot of fine journalists who are covering you know the coronavirus pandemic but i also wanted to be able to weigh in on that moment of history so you know I, but that, to me the 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 sweet spot is when a story has happened and been reported on and time has passed. And then you can go back and look at something that uh, maybe people have already forgotten or they didn't understand, but it's too late now, we've gone on to something else.
0: For future listeners who are not listening in this exact moment, we're uh, several days after the evacuation of Afghanistan by U.S. troops. Um, has it been hard for you to, to let go of this story? Was there any urge to just keep following the next thing following this general thread as it progressed past al-qaeda
1: yeah i am intrigued by the possibility of doing more on it and i've been doing some more reading um to try to become more current uh, i don't know if it'll manifest itself in in you know another article but i there i've put out some feelers about some people that I would like to talk to that after all this time have never spoken. And um, so, you know, Al-Qaeda is not a dead issue. You know, it was a small organization on 9-11. There were 170 pledged members, maybe three or 400 people altogether. And now, Al Qaeda and its affiliates have about thirty to forty thousand members in these chapters, all the way from Morocco to southern China. So it's and its goals haven't changed. Fortunately, you know, you know the U.S. and other intelligence agencies have been able to keep a pretty good bead on uh, on the threats to the West. But um, technological developments like drones and biological Inventions like CRISPR, you know, are those are those are troubling new uh, features of the world of terrorism, and um, so I'm alert to that. But I haven't settled on uh, how to approach it next.
0: And are you just gonna write forever? What's your outlook in terms of projects? How how far out are you planning at this point?
1: Well, Aaron, thanks for extending my lifespan uh, so consequentially forever. Yeah. I, if I had my druthers, yes, uh, forever would be my uh, goal. Uh, I'm I'm aware of the, you know, the, uh, that probably there's less road in front of me than there is behind. And yet I, I love my work. I, I hope to be able to, to do it up until the day I die. But, you know, I'm, I'm an old man now, and you know many of my contemporaries are gone or retired. And uh, yet, I I still feel as much energy for this task as as I did when I was young. And I I don't want to. Uh, I've got a lot of things on my plate that I'd like to do, and new ones arise. So, you know, it's. I'd say to anybody that is thinking about journalism as a profession it's incredibly rewarding, you know, it's, it's you have a passport into other people's lives that very few other people have. And, you know, it's it's fascinating. I wish that there was some way that uh, young people could be, you know, given an internship for a year or something like that in their daily newspaper or some, some opportunity, because what it does, it forces you to Uh, encounter people and beliefs uh, and and political ideas that you wouldn't otherwise have in your life. And so it enlarges your understanding of humanity. And I think what's happened is that we've become simplified and polarized uh, in our views about life. And there's, you know, journalism is the opposite of that. It's about complexity and nuance and exploring the differences uh, between people. And that's what makes it so exciting.
0: Thank you very much for this interview. Well,
1: thank you, Aaron, it's been a pleasure. I look forward to still being alive for the next one. Uh,
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, I think we're at about every seven year clip, so I'll see you you in 2028 or whenever you wanna talk next, you are always uh, invited on the show and, and it's wonderful talking to you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: That's another episode of the Longform Podcast. Thanks very much to my guest, Lawrence Wright. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor on this episode, Seth Kelly. Our interns, Susan Peterson and Julianne Sato-Parker. Thanks to everyone over at Vox Media. And of course, our friends at MailChimp. We will be back next week.